executive pastor down there, and he actually survived pretty well. And the Levin Goods and the Richters and others, I had no idea. Let me thank you, Roger and Sherry, Dennis, the session, Theresa, Presbytery. These are extraordinary events. I get teary one time in a pulpit, and this is the kind of time where I get, where I get teary because I like ordinations and installations absolutely the best. I did work with RUF for a number of years, and you might assume, therefore, that I had the privilege of participating in a fair number of ordinations and installations. This is what's happening in the church. This is the church at work, with congregations calling and presbyteries approving of men to serve as pastors in our congregations. This is really good, and I can only say I really, really am grateful for the privilege. Thank you very much. I invite you to turn with me to the scripture reading for the morning. It's in 1 John in the third chapter. And even though uh, Dennis told me to be short, and I tell him I'm always short. <laughs> Thank you, Ed. That's what he pled. Please, Bebo, don't be long. I couldn't if I had to. But uh, read this whole passage because this, in, in theory, could potentially be the most important part of the worship, to read God's word. And let us pray. As we approach it, Father, would you give us not only understanding, but would you give us your application to our hearts as we read this, your word, which you have given, inspired for our good and for your honor. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 John 3, see how great a love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, <coughs> that, we sh that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you, 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Thanks be to God for having given us this, his holy word. I give a little title to it, and here's the little title. I call it Maxims. Well, what's a maxim? I had to look it up. You ever have to look up things? I have to look it up. I had to look it up, and a maxim is a pithy word or a little bitty short phrase that is expressing some real truth. Oh, maxims. I want to point out in a moment three maxims out of this passage. Well, here's a maxim. Did uh, you ever listen to Dave Ramsey on the radio? I did. In RUF days, I was, I was, as I was driving here, there, and yonder, at times I would be listening to Dave Ramsey on the radio in the afternoon. I agreed with a lot of what he said. I didn't agree with everything. Who agrees with everything? But Dave Ramsey had a little maxim that he tossed around often. And here's how it went. He said... If you're in financial difficulty, there's one of two things you've got to do. Cut your spending or increase your income. I said, uh, uh, that, that, that's kind of right, isn't it? Uh, okay. My father was a blue-collar man. He worked hard all of his life. He had little sayings that he would toss around in the family occasionally, and here was one of his little maxims. Blue-collar man, working hard. He said, a man's got to eat. Okay. And he said a man's got to stay cool in the summer and warm in the winter. Okay. Uh, well, those were maxims. He tossed it out, and I heard it, and I believed it. He was right. I want to suggest another little sort of maxim for you right now. Dennis in seminary, et cetera. I'm not going to put you on the spot, Dennis. Uh, put Roger on the spot. Uh, all those years ago in seminary, you had to learn that there are seven major categories of theology. One, for example, is Christology. Imagine that. One is soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Imagine that. But one is ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And it is appropriate to say that since each of those seven would be taught in the word, we believe that each is equally ultimate with the other in importance, the doctrine of the church. 
We are here because of the doctrine of the church. And here's how a little maxim might go. We, the church, are fulfilling God's call of this man to this place. This is God's stuff. This is God's working his providence in this life, in these lives, and in this congregation. That's a maxim. That is a truth that is being borne out in your experience right here at this moment. Okay, maxims. Bebo, I get it. Tell us something that's refreshing and new. I don't have anything particularly refreshing and new. I've got something old, but you need to hear again. Maxim number one, I say this. God loves us. Bebo, that is really profound. How did you discover that? Well, I discovered it in reading this passage, for example. Since how great a love, I see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. We are children of God because God loves us. I might want to just close and sit down and be done. Do we get it? Do we understand that God loves us? One of the Puritans, Thomas Watson, said this, he said, love is the queen of graces. Well, we've had a lot of discussion in recent months about the queen, haven't we? We've had a lot of discussion about what that might be. The love of God is the queen of all graces. He said, the nature of love consists in delighting in its object. Or you and I might therefore say that God delights in the object of his affection. He delights in you as you are in Christ. That's fundamentally, basically true all the way through from Genesis 3, 15 to the end of Revelation. This is a love story that God is giving us. The church is the manifestation of the love story as God is accomplishing his purpose amidst his people. Another of the Puritans, Thomas Brooks, said this, God reflects upon the least good that is in or done by weak saints. God reflects on the least little bit of thing with an eye of love. Well, some of us are parents. I see two or three grandparents in here. Who knows? There might be great-grandparents. Nonetheless, it is a truism that parents are highly inclined to love their children, aren't they? Even in the midst of the weakness of their efforts, the poor performance, we still love them. Well, it's a little anecdotal, anecdotal story. <coughs> Son, Jamie, he's done grown up. <laughs> he's 40 years old. Where did we get him? When he was about seven, he wanted to wash dad's car. I'm kind of a car person. My cars don't go through car washes. My cars get the hand treatment, you know. But Jamie wanted to express an attitude toward his father. And so I said, yes, let it be. You can imagine what it was like. 
but I loved him because he wanted to do something for his dad. That's the kind of thing Thomas Brooks is saying right here. The weakest thing that we do, God sees through his affection toward us in Christ, and we find his blessing as a result. The Lord reflects an eye of love upon your thoughts, upon your desires, upon your tears, and upon your groans. My favorite verses in the whole Bible, you can write it down, they can become your favorite verses too. Philippians 2, 12b and 13 are these. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, causing you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in me, causing me to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is the agent at work in the lives of his people. Why? Because he loves us. How does God show this love to us? Well, we have the preeminent example, of course, and he's showing his love because of God himself, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the same in substance and glory as the other two, was willing to give himself for you. For you. That's magnificent. Another way to look at it is this. Do we have catechism people in the, in the congregation today? Uh, we had a rule in our family. Oh, my wife is wincing. We had a rule in our family. The kids love for me to say this. We had a rule in our family. They, upon reaching the appropriate age and satisfying the state of the requirements to get a driver's license. Roger, where are you? Oh, I see you back there. Uh, Roger, uh, uh, our rule was uh, satisfy the state and recite the catechism and or age 35, we don't care which comes first. <laughs> catechism. Catechism is a wonderful teaching tool. What are God's decrees? God's decrees are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby he's foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That says into eternity past, God has decreed that this will be happening right here and right now. How does God execute his decrees? God executed the decrees of the, in the works of creation and providence. Boom. And providence. What are God's works of providence? God's works of providence are His holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. God's fingerprints are all over you. Making you and me more meat for heaven. And when the appropriate time comes and he's finished the polishing, we are ready because of the work of Jesus Christ to be with Father, Son, and Spirit in heaven. Oh. God uses difficulties too, doesn't he? Ralph, I quote Brister everywhere I go. You know there's a new Brister at First Pres in Jackson? He's Brister Dempsey. I told Dempsey that uh, he's got another 30 years or so in this position if he follows in the footsteps of Brister. But Brister, Brister had some of these quotes, and here's one that I remember from uh, Brister. Brister said all those years ago, the afflictions of this life wean us away from the affections of this life. How weaned are you? Or what are you understanding about weaning away 
from the affections of this life. God uses afflictions. God uses afflictions. I've got an 82-year-old brother who's struggling. He's saying he'd rather be in heaven. Imagine that. Imagine that. Providence. God works out his love in our lives through his providence. And the church is at work today. This is a Presbytery commission. And this commission being here, Presbytery is acting to bring approval and installation of your new associate pastor. Praise the Lord. A mark of God's love for this congregation. Maxim number one, God loves us. Shut it down, Bebo, that's enough. Well, let me do a little more. Maxim number two, we love God. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4. Verses 19 and 20. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We love God because God is at work in us. Love is an emotion, yes. It is an affection, yes. There's a little discussion out there about, well, what kind of affections can God have? Well, the confession says that God is without passion. Well, I understand that. And that really is a 17th century expression saying that God is not, does not have unbounded emotions. But Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Jesus could weep over Jerusalem. We love God because God loves us. And he has affection for every one of you who is in Christ. That's pretty good. I think that's really good. Thomas Watson said, Love is an industrious affection. I never thought about putting those word, two words together in a sentence. Love is an industrious affection. How does that work? It must be active. God, like a, an industry, is, and like, like creating, like doing things, is putting his love to work in our lives. Consequently, we fall in love with God more and more as we approach heaven later and later in life, don't we? Jesus proclaimed that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Matthew 22, of course. God must have priority in our lives in all that we do. Christian World and Life View, Covenant College, what are we doing here? We're trying to implement a Christian world and life view. All that we do, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. We are responding with industrious love because God loves us. Jesus said, if you, will, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Thomas Watson in the same reference in his book on the portrait of the Christian man 
after he says that we are trying to be more like Christ, he immediately goes into a discussion of worship, what we're doing right here. And he says how people worship is an indication of their response to God. How we approach worship. How we sing. How we give. How we listen. How we ask God to give us application. Is an indication of our love toward God. Hmm. Jesus said in summarizing the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It is said that the first of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 might have been enough because it encapsulates all the other nine. You will have no other gods before you. None. And let me tell you some of what that looks like. You shall not have any idols. Let me tell you what that's somewhat like. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that's not just using God's name in vocabulary. Read the larger catechism on the second and third and fourth commandments. It's really good. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in, in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thy labor do all thy work, but the seventh of the Lord is the seventh of the Lord thy God. You shall not do your labor, your ox, nor your ass, nor your, your neighbor that is when your foreigner that is within your in your gates, within your house. It's a special day. It's a Special day. We are special people loved by God. And it's a special day. How you treat the Lord's day is some indication of your love for God. Hmm. Uh, huh. This is a motivation for preachers, isn't it? Oh, Roger told me I couldn't do a, a charge to the preacher and told me I can't do a charge to the congregation, but I can get mighty close. Here we are. We are to be people in love with God, resulting from his being in love with us. And your pastors are here. Your session is here. Your deacons are here. Your women of the church are here. We're all here together for the sake of implementing our being nurtured toward heaven. Can I tell you that in my estimation, these guys are important? Can I tell you that old Jim Richter clocked in a few years of doing that job? A few years, wasn't it, Jim? Just a few. I knew him back in his previous lifetime. Thank God that he gives pastors to his church. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, go read about them. I'm off script when I say this. Every now and then I wander off script a bit. Here you go. I say that being a preacher is the hardest job on the planet unless it's the easiest. Some preachers make it into a nothing. But others make it into accepted as the hardest job on the planet. And Jim, I say quite often, a preacher puts his head on the pillow at night wondering, have I been too hard today? Have I been too soft today? Oh, thank God I got another day tomorrow to try again. 
we are loving God as his people. Maxim number two. Maxim number three is this. We love others. Verses 16, verses 18, verses 23. won't read them. But here is a motivation for preachers if there ever was one. We are here because of loving each other. And we are here being pastored by these people, nurturing us along the way of loving God and loving each other. Aren't we glad to have them? We're glad to have them. We're glad that God has brought these men to be with us. Jesus said in John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have, uh, if you love, have love one for another. John 15, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Hmm. And then in the big commandments, number five is, and five through ten are dealing with our relationships. Honor your father and your mother. Imagine ridiculing a wife by a husband. Mm -hmm. You shall not murder. Imagine hatred for others. Mm -hmm. Imagine you shall not commit adultery. Mm -hmm. Look what it does to families when that kind of thing happens. Imagine you shall not steal. Mm -hmm. Even in the workplace, how do you work? We are Christians. One of the Puritans once said, and in fact it came up in our little Friday morning Bible study two days ago. It came up afresh because of something Thomas Watson said. Get this. You'll say, it doesn't sound like it's really a part of what you're trying to say. Well, but get it, okay? No Christian is underpaid. And likewise, no Christian is overpaid. Because God is dealing out responsibilities according to his decree, according to his providence, according to our place in life. Well, you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. You shall not bear false witness. In ethics, you never have the right to do wrong. We don't lie, do we? You never have the right to do wrong. And you never have the right to give someone else the right to do wrong. We are Christians. This is who we are and what we do, the way we live, standing before God. Well, you can tell that I'm winding down. Getting real short. You can tell that I've said that there are three maxims that I wanted to mention. Maxim number one was, God loves his people. God loves his people. Are you one? Are you right with God? Are you still bearing your sin, facing eternity? God loves his people and has brought from the cross forgiveness of sin. It's important. Number two, his people love him. And his people salute the flag and say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I love him because he first loved me. 
And number three is his people love others. His people love others. I've got, if I can find it in my notes. Here's a, bear with me. Just, this is just too good for me not to read. Dennis, I, I know I'm going to take a couple extra minutes here. This is from one of the Puritans from David Clarkson. He died in 1686. The love of Christ, O oh, boundless love. Oh, the unsearchable riches of Christ's love. Oh, happy souls that have interest in this love. In these riches, this love made God willing to be made a curse. The Lord of life to die a base, accursed, and cruel death. Lord, there was no sorrow like your sorrow. No love like your love. Was it not enough, dear Savior, that you condescended to pray, sigh, and weep for us, but were willing also to bleed and die for us? Was it not enough that you were hated, slandered, and blasphemed, but also scourged, nailed, wounded, and crucified? Was it not enough that you felt the, the cruelty of man, but also underwent the wrath of God? Was it not enough that you died not only once, but actually twice in soul and body enduring the second death? Or the transcendent love of oh, the transcendent love of Christ. Heaven and earth are astonished at it. What tongue can express it? What heart can conceive it? The tongues, the thoughts of men, angels are far below it. Oh, the height, depth, breadth, and length of the love of Christ. The love of Christ is free, unchangeable, and incomprehensible. He loved us when we had no beauty to attract his affections. Christ knew all this clearly. In eternity past, Christ saw all, all of our faults, and not one after another, but all together. This adds great wonder to the love of Christ. He saw every perverse look, every unkind gesture, every rebellious motion, every disingenuous act. Every heart was visible from eternity. Here is the wonder of Christ's love. It is fixed upon man, the worst of creatures. Consider his resolution and wonder. I will give eternal life to those who have dishonored me. What can I say? Do you get it? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, we are astonished afresh by simply thinking, much less by living out our thoughts about your love for us, Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past. Bless this church. Bless these pastors. Bless these officers. Bless these members. Flourish among us, we pray, because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.